Good morning, everybody. It is good to be here with you. Uh, If you would, take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. This morning, we're going to look only at verse 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. It is a great privilege to be with you all here this morning. Um, You all and your pastor have already been a great blessing to me. As Pastor Jeff said, my name is Matthew Shores. I'm a pastor of Woodside Community Church in New York City. Um, So I went from one hot spot to the new hot spot and came down here with you guys. Um, But I'm very thankful uh, to be with you. Uh, My wife is from Jacksonville, North Carolina. I was married to her in Jacksonville, North Carolina. I'm from Hickory, North Carolina. So we are North Carolinians now finding ourselves in the city Um, But I have been in this area off and on for a long time, hopping around, looking for good churches. Um, And when I look for good churches, I look for God's Word uh, faithfully proclaimed. Um, And I have been having a hard time. Uh, People think there are no good churches in New York City. Uh, There aren't a lot of good churches anywhere um, where God's Word is faithfully exposited. Um, So when, by the grace of God, I stumbled through these doors uh, last December... Uh, I was very, very edified and encouraged and very, very excited to hear God's Word being faithfully proclaimed. Um, So be encouraged. Uh, It is very difficult to find good preaching. Um, So be very thankful uh, that you have good preaching um, and know that what you have is actually a fairly rare thing. Um, So I'm thankful for your pastor. Happy birthday, Jeff. I'm glad I can serve. There's nothing, there's no better gift to a pastor than to not be preparing a sermon. Um, So this is my, (laughs) this is my present to Jeff. Um, I am a very pretty theologically particular person. I am very long-winded. Um, so when I found someone who seems to be on the same page theologically with me and who seems to be equally long-winded, um, I was pretty excited. So if this is a long, past, uh, a long sermon, it's ultimately Pastor Jeff's fault. Um, but Also, this is not a fashion statement. I was rushing out the door two weeks ago to get to my family, and I forgot my dress shoes. Um, so... I'm preaching in a suit and tennis shoes. Um, oh, well. I've, I feel like Roy Williams, the coaches versus cancer. They wear the suits and they wear the tennis shoes. Um, go Tar Heels. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I love preaching God's Word. Uh, God's Word is food. Uh, God's Word is life. So let's, let's get into God's Word. Um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul is beginning to wrap up this wonderful letter. And as he does, he returns to the central theme of the book. And as he does, Paul repeats himself. And again, I say Paul repeats himself. If you look in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then only 24 verses later, in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. You look back at chapter 3, verse 2. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So again, Paul does not hesitate to repeat himself. And so I'm not going to hesitate to repeat myself. And I'm not going to hesitate to repeat Pastor Jeff. I know that he preached on chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 a couple of months ago. I listened to it running There's a state park over here by the water, and I went and ran along that way listening to your pastor preach this text. It's a great sermon. Go listen to it. It's a better exposition of this whole passage than you'll get from me. But I want to narrow in very specifically and focus this morning just on joy. Paul talks about joy a lot. Uh, You just heard a sermon a few months ago on joy. But how many times have you struggled to rejoice since you heard that sermon? So we're going to talk about joy because Paul can't stop talking about joy. He can't get away from it. It seems like it must be really, really important because he tells us again and again and again to do it. And so the theme of this letter, the theme of Philippians is gospel-generated joy. And I want to look at you this morning at the nature of biblical joy. You probably know this verse very, very well. You probably have it memorized, but I know that you probably struggle with joy, even though you know this verse very well. Um, So that's what I want to try to unpack. What is this? We throw out these words all the time. What do they mean? What does it actually look like to rejoice always? So let's start with a question this morning. Honestly, answer this to yourself. Are you joyful? Are you generally a happy person? If I ask the people around you, In your life, the best people, the people that know you best, the people that spend the most time with you, would they describe you as someone who is generally characterized 
by joy? I'm somewhat concerned about the answer to that question for myself. I'm not sure how my wife or my kids would answer that question. Um, I need a lot of help in this area. I need this constant reminder, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. And so the topic of this sermon is pretty simple. It's, it's just joy. I struggle with joy. I don't know about you. I, struggled, I was on vacation this week and I struggled with joy. Uh, I struggled with joy this morning. I would wager that you did too. So let's turn to God's Word and see what this joy thing actually is. I have a nice, simple outline for you this morning. We're going to have just three questions that we're going to seek to answer from the text. It's just what, when, and how. What, rejoice, when, here's the hard part, always, how, in the Lord. What, when, how. I went to seminary for five years to come up with outlines like that. It's brilliant, isn't it? Are you joyful? Let's see what God's Word says about the nature of biblical joy. It's just one verse. I will read it for you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. But pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If you would bow with me and let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, Your Word is living and active. Father, Your Word works. You work through Your Word. So Father, now I ask uh, that You would do what You have promised. I ask that You would take this very simple, seemingly simple Word, and I pray that by Your Spirit, that You would apply it uh, to our hearts and to our minds. I pray that You would edify and encourage and strengthen us uh, with Your Word. Where we need it, Father, I pray that You would challenge us and rebuke us and correct us. Father, I pray that you would set me aside, and I pray that I would do nothing to get in the way of your word. I pray that your word would be the focus and the center of what happens here uh, in the next few minutes. Um, Father, you are the God who speaks, and we are so thankful that you speak. Help us to believe that you speak through these words. Help us to believe that you speak through the faithful preaching of your word. And now, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear those words. Father, please, uh, we can do nothing apart from you. Help the preaching of your word. Help the hearing of your word. Father, glorify your name and edify your people in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you don't have to be a biblical scholar to figure out what this verse is about. Joy. Uh, rejoice. And just in case it's not clear, Paul repeats himself. Again, he will say rejoice. So, pretty simple pretty straightforward. Um, there are a couple of things I notice about it that I want to kind of draw your attention to that I think stand out about this verse. First, I want you to notice the placement of this verse. We are towards the end of the letter. Paul is wrapping up. He has said this before, but again, he says, rejoice. And so that's the second thing that stands out about this is the repetition. One of the most important things you need to be looking for when you get, read God's Word is repetition. There's no highlighting or bolding or underlining, but when you see repetition, that's like the pay attention and listen to this thing. So Paul repeats this throughout the letter, and then he repeats it twice in this one verse for emphasis. So some, based upon this, will argue that this is the main verse of the whole letter. Now, I think it's a difficult case to make because this book is just chock full of so many important verses, but the placement of this and this double imperative, this double command after Paul has masterfully woven this golden thread of joy throughout the whole letter, all culminating in this verse, makes a pretty strong case that this is the center. This is what Paul wants to communicate. This command. And that's the third thing that stands out about this verse. This is a command. It is an imperative. It is an obligation. Which means that if you are a Christian, joy is your duty. It is your moral and Christian and spiritual obligation to be joyful. God, through the Apostle Paul, is commanding you to be joyful. For you then not to be joyful, and this is hard for me, for you then not to be joyful is to disobey God's command. This is part of God's law. Which means that in a very real sense, our failure to be joyful is ultimately sinful. 
So we have the verse's location, we have its repetition, and we have its obligation that make this verse stand out, and it just demands our attention. Christians are commanded to rejoice. Well, so what is it then? What is joy, and what does it actually mean to rejoice? Sixteen times Paul uses some form of the word joy or rejoice in this short letter. And the Greek, careful with this, the Greek is actually helpful here, and it makes you think that I'm smarter than I am, so I'm going to do it for a second. But check this word out. Uh, the Greek word for joy is kara, kara, which is really important. Grace Church, do you know what your Greek name is? Does everyone know? Has Jeff taught you this? Did anybody? Charis. So notice this. Grace in Greek is charis. Joy in Greek is kara. The only difference is that ending, I-S and A. It's the same word built on the same root. So charis, your namesake, is grace, unearned, unmerited favor. But not just unmerited favor. Grace is actually demerited favor. In other words, it's not just that we don't deserve it. It's that we actually deserve the exact opposite of it. Grace is God giving to us good when we actually deserve bad. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That is what you deserve. That is what you have merited. You have earned death with your sin. You, you work hard at your job. You earn a paycheck. You deserve that money. Hey, you work hard at your sin. You earn a paycheck. You deserve death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what you get in Christ. Eternal life. You deserved death. God gives you life. That's grace. It's not only unmerited. It's demerited. You deserve the opposite of what you get. And so if charis is grace, if that's God being good to us when we deserve the opposite, well then joy, kara, must be joy because of grace. So what is joy then? Joy is simply gladness. It's pleasure, it's satisfaction, it's happiness. Okay, but we know we find uh, these things and all kinds of stuff. I'm glad that I'm on vacation. I'm glad that sports may start back up soon. I am glad when I eat duck donuts. We don't have that in the north, and I love duck donuts. Um, I'm glad for my wife. I have four wonderful daughters that I love more than life itself. I'm, I'm satisfied with my daughters, although my wife doesn't think so because I want a fifth daughter. Um, but uh, she's listening online probably, so I keep putting that in there. But listen, gladness is good. Gladness can come from all kinds of things that bring you pleasure. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're talking about in Philippians. That is not biblical joy. And that's why you must hold on to the connection between gladness and grace. Biblically, joy is gladness because of grace. So joy it means it equals glad for grace. God has been eternally gracious and good to us in Christ, and therefore, we are glad. We are content. We are convinced that all is well. And so I define joy like this. Joy is a settled and glad conviction that all is well. Joy is a settled and glad conviction that all is well, even when surrounding circumstances are far from well. That's joy. One of our favorite songs at our church right now is a song called All Must Be Well by Indelible Grace. Have you guys ever heard that one or sung that one? Look it up. It's a great song. All Must Be Well. The first verse goes, Through the love of God our Savior all will be well. Free and changeless is His favor all is well. Precious is the blood that healed us. Perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hand stretched forth to heal us all must be well. See, I love that progression. All is well, all will be well. In Christ, actually, all must be well. That's joy. The settled conviction that all is well because of God's grace and then the gladness that results from that. And so the second verse of that song says, Happy still in God confiding. 
Joy is to be happy, but it is to be happy in the Lord. Joy is gladness, but it is gladness specifically because of grace. One commentator I was reading writes this. He says, joy unmitigated. Then check this word out. I had to look this one up. He said, untrammeled joy. Untrammeled means unhindered or not restrained or restricted. I didn't know that word. He says, this joy is or at least should be. Catch this. The distinctive mark of the believer in Christ. Joy. The distinctive mark of the believer in Christ. The wearing of black and the long face which so often came to typify some later expressions of Christian piety are totally foreign to Paul. So Christian, you are commanded to rejoice. You are commanded to be glad. Paul is basically saying, hey, you guys, be happy. This sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But it gets worse. Let's keep moving. Point number two, when? Rejoice, a command. Well, how much? In what circumstances? How often? Always. Rejoice, always. What? In verse five, you'll see Paul tell us to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. It's a very fun, rich word. Go look it up. But in light of this command to rejoice always, my first thought is, Paul, be reasonable. This is not reasonable. This is in. This is insane. But this is not the only time Paul says this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. A two-word verse. If you struggle with Scripture memory, start with 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. You can do this one. Rejoice always. That's it. I'll flip there real quick if you would like. 1 Thessalonians 5. It's just a couple pages uh, to your right if you've got your Bible open. I want you to look at these two passages. I want you to notice the parallels between 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 through 18, and then keep your finger on Philippians 4, verses 2 through 7. And I want you to look at those two together. In Philippians 4, 2, you'll see the command basically to, uh, after Paul in this passage says, uh, there should be no conflict, you should never complain, and you should rejoice always. So again, it just hits you in the face. So Philippians 4, 2 is no conflict. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but always, there's that word again, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's what you are called to do right in the middle of conflict. When you're all offended and riled up and angry, always seek to do good to one another. These are, these are difficult commands. Well, how do you do that? Well, in part, what we're looking at, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice Always, same in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. How? Well, in part, Philippians 4.6, by not being anxious about anything. Um, that's, again, I, I've been really struggling with that one lately. Um, how can we do that? Prayer, make your request known to God. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. How should we pray? Philippians 4.6, with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. So these great parallels between these two great passages. And all of this, he says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. No conflict, always joyful, always praying, always thankful. Paul doesn't mess around. Paul doesn't lower the bar for us. This is no mere Christianity. This is what we are called to to do. This is what we are equipped for by God's Spirit working through His Word. And I don't want you to miss that Paul does not in any way qualify the when of the what. It's rejoice and then it's always. That's it. And it's so easy to rejoice when things are going well. We know that. I worked on this sermon in part up in the Adirondack Mountains of New York. It's beautiful up there. We've lived in New York State now for eight years. But I hadn't basically left the city. Right? When, we, when we think of New York, we all only think of, of New York City. But there's actually a whole lot of state up there and a whole lot of beauty that I didn't know about. So we had a great trip. But on the drive back from the getaway, I was listening to sermons on Philippians 4.4. And I may have a tendency to somewhat err a bit on the north side of the speed limit. I don't use cruise control because I doze, so I can't use it. Um, so if I'm not paying attention and the road is open and clear and downhill, which it was, I sometimes tend to move a little bit quickly on the road. 
Well, right as the preacher I was listening to introduced his text and read the text and said, Rejoice in the Lord always, I looked up and there's the officer as I go flying by the officer. And then you do the thing, you slam on the brakes, you look down, uh, 16 over, whoops. Uh, I immediately said to my wife, well, he's, he's got us, he's got us, if, us, he's got me, <laughs> right, yeah, he's got me if he wants me. Again, you know that feeling, your, your heart, you get that little adrenaline hit, your heart rate picks up, you hope he doesn't see, and then you watch the rearview mirror the whole time, is he coming, is he coming, is he, is he coming? Uh, he didn't come, right? So, my response, rejoice, right? <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always, no problem there, right, easy. I was wrong. I deserved to be pulled over. I deserved to pay the couple hundred dollars uh, that I would have owed for my infraction. For whatever reason, he didn't come. Joy. I, but I had listened to multiple sermons on this text. I was working on this text. I knew I was wrong. And so for a minute or two, while I was sure that he was coming and while I was watching, I had already started talking to myself. Right Here's the test. Right, here it is. Rejoice always. Even when busted for speeding, even when coughing up a couple of hundred bucks I don't need to spend, even when he wakes up the sleeping baby, right? I would have still been called in that moment to rejoice. And then, two weeks ago, my family has been down here for six weeks, and I've been going back and forth. Um, I don't recommend a nine-hour work commute. Um, but I had just preached three Sundays ago on our covenant obligations. We've been talking about justice. You know, everything, everybody's talking about justice. Um, trying to explain how justice is defined by the word differently than it's defined by the world. Um, so it's basically explaining that justice is that which accords with God's law. God is our standard for justice. Um, he determines what is just and right through his law and through the keeping of his law. Um, so I preached a whole sermon on God's law. I preached a whole sermon on our, uh, the goodness of authority and our call to submit to authority and obey authority. This was right in the heat of the, you know, out, uh, two miles from my house, all the protests and all the crazies happening. So I'm talking about the goodness of authority and the goodness of police officers and the goodness of all these things. I preached this sermon. I drive back, and there's another one right here. <laughs> I made it nine and a half hours and got all the way to Kinston, and there's the police officer. And this time... He comes. Um, this time he got me. And so I'm preaching this sermon about rejoicing. I'm talking about the goodness of authority. And then I get pulled over and have to spend all the money. Rejoice. It's still rejoice. Always. No qualifications. Coronavirus. Rejoice. Civil unrest. Rejoice. I was supposed to get a sabbatical this summer. right? Extended time to rest and recover and write. Nope. Gone. Rejoice. What? Rejoice when? Always. Listen, I think that that sounds impossible to some of you. Because I know that that sounds impossible to me sometimes. I think it sounds unfair to some of you. Because I know that it sounds unfair to me at times. This is sort of off-putting for many of us because we still think it's unfair to command something like Joy. It's unfair to command an emotion. Well, they just happen to me. I just feel the way that I do. Or don't tell me to feel differently, right? I, I can't do that. Yeah, that's how I feel sometimes. Listen, uh, you guys don't know me, so this is dumb, but I'm not a naturally happy person. Right? I could pop in here and preach once, and I could trick you all and convince you. I get really excited while preaching, and I get a lot of energy. Um, but outside of this space... Uh, I'm a different person. Uh, just I struggle with joy. Uh, I struggle with this verse. This stuff does not come naturally to me. My wife is naturally very joyful, and I am the opposite. And praise God, she's brought me towards the middle, and unfortunately, I've brought her a little bit <laughs> towards uh, the middle. Um, but Philippians is a difficult book for me. This is a difficult sermon for me to preach, a difficult series for me to stand in front of my people and preach over and over and over again this command to rejoice because I know that I struggle with joy. I know that I'm a somewhat grumpy, moody, and mopey person. Um, and so what do we do with this? Right? Well, what do I do? My wife knows that on Saturdays before preaching and on Sundays after preaching, I'm just not the best person to be around. Right? She, can, she can see it. I turn in, I start thinking, I start brooding is the word that someone used this week. I was talking to my uncle who's older than wiser than me and we talked about brooding. Um, you can just tell that I can be distracted and not as engaged. I'm not naturally joyful, right? And I know that. And I, I hate that. 
I even know when it's happening, and I hate when it's happening. And you know what the least helpful thing is when I'm in one of those moods? Someone telling me to be happy, right? <laughs> so again, I understand that some of you are in one of those moods, and I'm telling you to be happy, and you're angry with me. But, but here is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commanding us, commanding me, rejoice. Not once, but twice. Be happy, be happy, always. So if this seems somewhat crazy to you, then, then again, I'm with you. I understand. Don't assume that I've got this all figured out, uh, that I'm some sort of joy genius. I, I am not. I am a fellow joy struggler. I have been wrestling with this. I'm not always happy, and I'm not happy with that. So maybe some of you are a little bit like me. So, so what do we do? It's so easy to say, rejoice always, and you say, oh, trust in Jesus, and then we kind of move on and act like we've done something helpful. No, what do we do with this? I don't want to just say, hey, don't worry, be happy. It's not helpful. Um, so, uh, again, I know how hard it is when you're not joyful and you're aware that you're not joyful and you're aware that you should be joyful, but it feels like there's nothing that you could do. And so you're thinking, well, things are not going well, so I'm not happy. So what do we do? What do we do with this? It's a very simple command, but very difficult in application. A couple of things. Um, I, how I've been thinking through this and, and working on this. I think part of our frustration, first, may be from the fact that we still don't really understand my earlier definition and the nature of joy. And because we still don't really understand the definition and the nature of emotions. Uh, first off, we think that emotions just are. Right? Happiness, we think, is something that happens to us. Um, that we're entirely passive in the process and that we have no control. So then we think of joy in those terms, of feelings and spontaneous emotions. Listen, that's not how any emotion works. And thus, that's not how joy works as well. Here's what we've got to wrap our mind with. This is different than our culture would teach this. Uh, emotions always arise from our beliefs. Whether you're conscious of it specifically or not, much of it is subconscious, but your emotions always relate to and reveal your beliefs or your thoughts. Always. Right? And so, uh, we are so prone to think that happy emotions can only come then from happy circumstances. No ticket. Rejoice. Good circumstances. Rejoice. But listen, what about all the other times? What about quarantine? Uh, what about COVID? Uh, what about everything that's happening? What about the bad circumstances? Many of us, we've all, to some degree or another, been surrounded uh, by bad circumstances these last four months. Uh, we, we live in Woodside, which is by Elmhurst, which was the heart of the outbreak for a couple of weeks in there in Queens. There's 800 people a day um, uh, that were, were dying, right? uh, people that we know and that are connected to our church. What, what about, does this command still apply then? Yes. Rejoice always. So Paul is telling us, to rejoice no matter what we feel, which means that joy is something more than just a feeling, which is really, really good news for me. Yeah. Listen to a couple of these verses. Joy. What about in the midst of great sorrow? 1 Corinthians 6.10. We were sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He said there's two emotions that our culture pits against each other and says these two things cannot coexist. Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. What about in the midst of great affliction? 2 Corinthians 7.4, in all our affliction, so we've been experiencing, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7.4, in the middle of affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. What about in the midst of great trial? You know this one, James 1.2. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials, by definition, are unpleasant, difficult things. James says, count it joy. So sorrow, joy, affliction, joy, trials, joy. So we must readjust our understanding of joy. Biblical joy is circumstance-independent joy. This is something bigger and something better than the good feeling you get when things are going well, which should be very, very encouraging and hopeful to you if you're at all like me. This means that it is possible to be joyful even when things aren't going well. 
even when you aren't naturally feeling well, it is still possible to rejoice always. So what you're commanded to rejoice, when you are commanded to rejoice always. So coronavirus, rejoice. Job loss, rejoice. Cancer diagnosis, rejoice. No sabbatical, rejoice. It still sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? How in the world can that be possible? I mean, isn't it cruel to say such things? Oh, well, you've got cancer. Rejoice in the Lord. How? All right, third and final point. Here's the key part. Here's where Scripture does everything different than everything else. Paul is not just telling you to rejoice. He's not doing the song from the 80s, don't worry, be happy, suck it up. He's telling you how to rejoice. This is the most important part. (laughs) Rejoice in the Lord. That's it. That's the key. So let's clarify. When Paul says rejoice always, he he doesn't qualify when, but he does qualify the statement rejoice always in the Lord. So he's not saying cancer diagnosis, rejoice in cancer. No, not at all. Cancer is horrible. It's awful. We should hate it. We should mourn it. We should fight it. Paul is not cruelly telling you to rejoice in the bad things that happen to you. He's telling you to rejoice in Christ in the midst of the bad things that happen to you. It's rejoice in the Lord, which means that joy, real joy, the joy that Paul is talking about here, the joy that we're all looking for, is found only in Christ. He is the source. He is the ground of joy. It is joy in Christ. And so this command, this thing, this thing that we're all looking for, Paul is making it very clear, you will only find it in Him. And so if you are struggling with this, if you don't have this, well, it's because you're looking for joy in all the wrong places. It's because I take my eyes off of where I know the joy is found and try to find it in other places. Many of you, Know this, I'm not telling you anything new. And yet, many of you still struggle with this. And I still struggle with this. That's because much of wisdom is not about learning something new. It's about remembering what we already know and then actually living in light of what we already know. You know this, but you regularly forget it. So here's the key. Again, it's pretty simple. It's... Remember, it's 2 Peter 1.9. For whoever lacks these qualities, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, according to Peter, Christians can forget and they can live like they've forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. Solution, remember. I love the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Uh, we all sing that weird line, here I raise my Ebenezer. I don't know what that means. It made me think of Scrooge and a Christmas carol. Um, what's an Ebenezer? Well, it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. The Philistines are coming. Israel's afraid. God rescues. Israel defeats their enemies. So Samuel sets up an Ebenezer. literally means a stone of help, a memorial stone, a reminder to help people remember what God has done for them. You need to work to remember what God has has done for you. Yes, here's what it honestly, you need to think. That this this is the key to rejoicing always. This is how you rejoice in the Lord. If you look down at verse 8, you can see it where Paul tells us to then think about these things. I would love to do a whole long we say joy is the theme of Philippians, joy is this word that's repeated so much. There's actually one word that's repeated more than joy in the book of Philippians. And it's the word think and the word mind. And Paul does this masterfully brilliant connection of joy and thinking and the mind that we don't have time to really unpack. But throughout this book, this is one of Paul's most important themes and regular encouragements. And it can be really helpful and hopeful if you're someone like me who struggles with joy, who doesn't just feel joyful. You start by focusing on and changing not your feeling, but your thinking. This is how it works in Scripture. This is how the Bible encourages us to pursue joy, to think rightly, because right thinking leads to right feeling. Consider a couple more verses. Uh, Romans 5.3. 
Romans 5.3, he says we rejoice in our sufferings. Again, what? How? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, character, hope, etc. Yes, suffering's not fun. Suffering's not pleasant. We don't seek out suffering. But we rejoice in the midst of it. How? Paul tells us, because of what we know. Knowing that. I just read James 1-2 for you a minute ago. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Again, what? How? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So it's joy because of what you know. John 15. I'm working. I, the fall, September, I'm going to start John. and I'm so excited. I'm already studying and working and looking on I was doing that this week. Um, John 15 is such a wonderful chapter. Oh, we don't have time to really look at it. Um, I'm the vine. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How do you do that? Abide in me by my word. Abiding in you. Abide in me by keeping my commandments. Obey him. The law is good. Verse 11. All of this, these things I have spoken to you that purpose statement, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see what Jesus is doing there? He says, I want you to have joy, full joy. First of all, he wants you to have his joy. He's perfect. And he has perfect joy. And he says, that's what I'm working for you. That's what I want you to have. Uh, My joy, full joy. And Jesus says, so, and to accomplish all that, I'm teaching you these things. I'm giving you truth. I'm giving you doctrine. Know these things. Think about these things. And then you will have this joy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your your rejoicing is directly connected to your thinking. Right thinking leads to right living, leads to right feeling, leads to right rejoicing. This is the how. right? Christ is the how. Joy is found in Jesus, and joy is experienced in Jesus by learning to think on and live in Jesus. Change your thinking. There's a classic quote. I've only listened to about three of his sermons, but I guarantee he's used it, this quote, at some point in time, just because I know him well enough. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Uh, If you're someone prone to the blues, a little bit like I am, read that book. It's, it's wonderful. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression. Um, here's one of his famous quotes from it. Uh, he says, uh, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, and when he says spiritual depression, he just means lack of joy. He's not talking about clinical depression as we would maybe define it today. He's talking about general, Christians struggling with joy is what he's writing about. He says, um, this, the whole main trouble in this matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Guys, that's profoundly brilliant once you will think through it and work on that. Uh, Listening to yourself versus talking. To yourself. And that's what Paul means in Philippians chapter 4 by thinking. But what should you think about? All right, you need to learn this discipline of, of talking to yourself. Well, how do you actually go about doing this? Well, as a fellow struggler with joy, let me give you two things that I am constantly thinking about. And let me walk you through. I want to give you a, a little bit of extra application and try to. Here's what I do in this thing that I tend to struggle with. Uh, Here's kind of what I think this looks like. Rejoice in Christ by thinking on Christ. Two things that I am constantly thinking about. I am constantly thinking about salvation and sovereignty. Salvation and sovereignty. Let me do sovereignty first. You rejoice in Christ by thinking constantly and talking to yourself constantly and then living in light of God's perfect sovereignty. How can you have joy when things aren't going well and you aren't feeling well? Well, you need to know and rest and delight in the sovereignty of God, the rule and the reign of God, or or the control of God. To say that God is sovereign is simply to say that He is all-powerful and absolutely and meticulously in control of all things. What He wants to happen, happens. And everything that happens, happens according to His will. That's sovereignty. Or... 
We could talk, as the Reformers preferred to, of the providence of God. I love that word. Church, you desperately need the providence of God. This is a concept largely lost in churches today. That didn't used to be the case. We used to name cities after this concept. Roger Williams, Puritan, founder of the colony of Rhode Island, and the first Baptist church in America, like literally first Baptist America. Um, and he named his colony and then his capital Providence. It's important. People used to know what it was. What is it? Well, it's fun. It words. It comes from the Latin pro, which means before, and vedere, which means to see. So literally, Providence means to see beforehand, or it means foresight. But Providence is not just foreseeing, because our God is sovereign. His foreseeing is also His foredoing. God carries out, He executes His sovereignty, His will, His plans through creation. He creates everything, obviously, and then providence is how He sustains and directs everything. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the providence of God is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures. Chapter 5, paragraph 1. My church, we use the Second London Baptist Confession. Here's what chapter 5, paragraph 1 says. God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. You hear sometimes people say, you made this mistake, so you're outside of the will of God. You cannot be outside of the will of God, in this sense of the will of God, because it's all God's will. But God's providence is simply His upholding and His sustaining of all things, and His directing and governing of all things. So according to that, before time began, God decrees all that is going to come to pass. Coronavirus. Quarantine. Maybe more quarantine. Um, and then God actively sustains and directs all things to those good ends. So it's God's sovereignty works itself out in His providence. What's the big deal? How, how, how does this help us? Listen to another old confession. Read the old confessions. Save, don't read the new stuff. Belgic Confession. Providence, Article 13. Listen to this. Oh, this is so good. The doctrine, this doctrine, providence, gives us unspeakable comfort. Why? Since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father, who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under His Lordship, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird, can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that God holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us or touch us without divine permission and will. You see, the providence of God gives unspeakable comfort because it reminds us that He's a Father and that He cares for us. And I'm a father that cares for my daughters but can't control everything that happens to my daughters. I can't perfectly protect them. I get things wrong. But He can because he controls everything that happens. And he is bringing it all together for your good. My wife recently uh, shared with me a random fun fact. It was that Bob Ross was a master sergeant in the Air Force for 20 years. I didn't know that. I don't know if you people know Bob Ross. Do most people, maybe you young people don't know. Can I say that yet, young people? Um, Bob Ross, um, he was, it brought very joyful childhood memories back uh, for me. My dad is a painter. Uh, my uncle pursued it professionally. He teaches art at High Point University over not too far from here. Um, I didn't get their art ability, but I grew up with an appreciation for it. Um, we, didn't get, we didn't have cable when I was a kid, but we had PBS. And so we watched Bob Ross and his The Joy of Painting. He's a painter, if you've ever seen it. I love that show. And it's a fun fact that he was a master sergeant in the Air Force because if you've ever seen the show, Ross is the most soft-spoken and gentle guy that you've ever heard. He always talked about painting a, a happy little bush right, and a, and a playful little cloud. Um, just really, you know, this nice guy. Um, so what he would do, though, in the show is he would start from scratch and he would do an entire beautiful landscape in one 30-minute episode. And I remember as a child 
just finding great delight in watching that show. Because as he got started, it's just nothing. And then he starts, and it still looks like nothing. And then he keeps going, and it starts to look more like disorganized chaos. There's some scratches over here. There's this darkness over here. Here's a smear. It doesn't look like anything. But as the master works, and as you sit back and watch, all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, there's just like a couple quick strokes, and then just everything just comes together. And, and I'm sure in, in a true art critic's mind, this isn't great art, um, but for an eight-year-old, this was, it was brilliant. And my dad, he used to take us out on dates once a week, each of the four of us, and we'd often go to McDonald's because they had 39-cent cheeseburgers back in the day. And as an art guy, he would talk with me while he would draw pictures on McDonald's napkins. And I, just, I have memories of just uncontrollably smiling and giggling with delight as these random-looking lines that seem to have nothing to do with each other, again, with just a couple of strokes, all of a sudden come together into structure and organization and beauty. And that's how God's providence works. We're the eight-year-old watching the very beginning of the master's work. And so sometimes we only see the slash or we only see the black, or the smear, or the darkness. And sometimes from our perspective, it just looks like disorganized chaos. But in Bob Ross's mind, he knows where he's going, and he knows how to get there. And so in God's mind, the master's mind, all those dots and places and slashes and black things are exactly what he wants. And he knows exactly what he is doing. And he knows exactly how that black line and how that hard thing and that loss and that dark part of your life is going to perfectly come together into his perfectly designed masterpiece. Even as a child, uh, though I never would have been able to describe it, there was joy and delight in seeing order come out of seeming randomness and beauty coming out of seeming chaos. Joy comes in large part by knowing and trusting the master. It comes by resisting the urge to judge his work in the heat of the battle, in the middle of the dark part. It comes by resisting the urge of you, the eight-year-old, declaring that you understand the art. And again, by art here, we mean creation and reality and history and your own life, claiming that you understand it better than the maker and the master of it all. You need to learn to rejoice by constantly thinking on and reminding yourself of the sovereignty and the providence of God. Hey, listen, those circumstances, I don't know most of you. Some of you, difficult circumstances. Some of you, maybe really difficult circumstances. Hey, those circumstances, people used to have no problem. People used to comfort each other with this fact. Now we stay away from it. But those circumstances are specifically ordained and sent by God for your good. He's in control, but he's also good. So those circumstances are sent them by him for your good. A very impactful moment for me, like a long time ago, my, I have an older brother-in-law who's a pastor in Charlotte. The first two years of their church plant, somewhat disastrous and difficult and kids being sick and all these hard things. And he sat down with his mentor and he was just kind of pouring it all out. Here's how terrible it is and everything's awful and I want to quit and all these things. Um, and the, the first thing the guy said to him was, oh, God must really love you. I was, he told me, I was like, what? that's stupid. Like, what, like, what are you talking about? Um, but no, he's right. Like, God loves my brother-in-law. And he loves his family. And he was doing all of these things and working and shaping. And I, however, ten years later, you can look back and see a lot of the good things that God was doing uh, through those things. God is good. And so whatever he sends... It's, it's for your good. You may not be able to see it right now, even though it looks dark. Remember, it's only the beginning of the painting. Romans 8.28, we know whatever the lines are, whatever the dark, whatever the circumstances, the master is going to work them into his beautiful and perfect work. So if you can't see it now, and you often can't, develop the discipline of thinking about who God is and what he is doing, and then talking to yourself about it. This is what I'm constantly doing. I'm not a talkative person. I'm not a loud. I'm not the person in the middle of the room. I'm, I may look quiet. My, my wife's working on my angry face, the resting pastor face. Um, I may look checked out, uh, but generally, by the grace of God, I, I am battling. I'm struggling. I may not always win. I'm still working on it, but I'm learning to do what the psalmist does in Psalm 42 and 43. I know that I'm not joyful, 
So I begin to speak to my unjoyful self. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? The Psalms are, are so wonderful and so true to reality. I feel frequently cast down, and I feel that turmoil. So did David. So did the psalmists. Thank God for those words. So what do I do? I speak. Like David, I command myself, hope in God. Why? We've just seen because he's lovingly sovereign and he is executing his gracious providence in my life. But Psalm 42.5 gives us the ultimate reason. This will be my last thing. Hope in God, he says in verse 5, my salvation and my God. And so secondly, we rejoice in Christ by thinking constantly and talking to yourself constantly of the salvation of God. I just said that true biblical joy is circumstance independence joy. That's really important. You need to get that. That's correct. You know what I mean, though, because if you think about it, it's also important that we understand that true biblical joy is absolutely circumstance dependent joy. In fact, it's exactly because of our circumstances that we are joyful and can always rejoice. The very first letter of the verse, Paul writes to and is addressing those who are saints in Christ Jesus. Church, that's your circumstance. That's your location. That's your ultimate eternal circumstance. And so when I say that joy is circumstance independent, I hope you understand that that means earthly immediate circumstances. Some of your circumstances are probably terrible. Paul was in jail while he's writing this letter, and yet he rejoiced. The Philippians had false teachers assaulting them from the outside. There was conflict and division assaulting them from the inside, and yet Paul commands them to rejoice. Their immediate circumstances were awful, but their ultimate circumstances, amazing. The earthly circumstances deserved sorrow. The heavenly circumstances deserved never-ceasing joy. That's how you can rejoice always. It is by constantly thinking on and living in light of your ultimate circumstances. By thinking about these things. By setting your minds on the things above. You rejoice by thinking about the Lord. And you rejoice by thinking about the free gift of God's grace and salvation given to you through Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel of Christ Jesus is where you find joy. That you deserved death and hell for your sin. Uh, Sin should have been one of the things that we're thinking about. um, But I don't have enough time. Uh, The Puritans love to talk about, think about your sin, think about your sin, think about your sin. But as you think on your sin, and then think on Christ, who comes to take all of that sin, to in some way that we can't quite understand, to, to be that sin, and then to die in your place, that's what releases great joy. That's why true joy is only gospel-generated joy. It's only joy in Jesus, the Savior of His sinful people. That's why joy must be based on grace. And so you must learn the practice of not just saying you believe these things or that you think this stuff, but then constantly actually doing it, rehearsing it, talking to yourself. I have this internal monologue. We had an interesting discussion this week where my brother apparently has an entirely positive internal monologue and mine's the opposite. I'm trying to figure that out. Um, So what I'm doing is taking control of that and I'm saying, what David, why so downcast? Oh my soul, put your hope in God. And I'm rehearsing my circumstances. Why am I grumpy? Why my kids won't stop talking to me? Why am I going being annoying and they're not listening? And all these things become about me and my comfort and my ease and the things that I want and my idols. And so then I have to take those thoughts captive, bring in what is true, and remind myself of who I am in Christ. I remind myself of the one... Can you imagine that we get angry at our kids? Like if you think about it, that's the, that's the dumbest thing in the world. Right? What gifts these children are to us. God gives us these little people that we get to shape and to love and to be with, and then we just get annoyed with them and frustrated with them. I was repenting last night for how annoyed I was on the drive a little bit uh, yesterday, coming from Myrtle Beach. Um, But it's absurd. 
if we think about it. And so I remind myself of the gift that these children are and then the gift of God's grace to me to give them to me, the gift of my salvation, the gift of the responsibility. Parenting, one guy puts it, is preparing your children for judgment day. Right? The gift of the responsibility that I get to pour Christ into them and do everything that I can for them so that they will know Jesus. Right? And so I'm talking and reminding and I am rehearsing. Right? Uh, I'm going to God's word, taking what I know is true and believe, and then trying to apply it to my soul and to my heart and to my mind. I have lots of dumb, false, selfish, sinful feelings. What I need by the grace of God is to submit them to God's good and life-giving truth that is found in his word. So I'm learning to actually think and live in light of what God says is true. Don't just say you believe it. Fight to believe it. And do it by constantly thinking about it. I just poured out, I just confessed to all of you how terrible I am. Uh, do that with your spouse. Right? Do that with somebody else. Tell them that you're terrible and then ask for your, their, their help. Right? My wife knows my heart and so she's constantly helping and encouraging and patient and kind. We do these things together. And by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, as God's living and active word begins to do its work, and slowly, sometimes very slowly, but slowly those feelings change. Right? Slowly there is joy, there's gladness, there's pleasure, there's satisfaction. Oh, He loves me. Look at what He has done for me in Christ. Look at what He continues to do for me. Oh, I, I am glad in Him. I am thankful for Him. I, I'd forgotten. I must remember. I must think. And that's what it means to start actively seeking to rejoice in the Lord by thinking on the Lord. Guys, he, he's so good. I'm not going to see you again, maybe Lord willing, until December. Um, but I just want you to encourage you that God is really, really good. Um, stuff seems really, really bad um, right now. But man, he's the king and he's on his throne and he's reigning. And guess what he's doing? <laughs> He's preserving and protecting and sanctifying his people because God loves his people. Uh, I was in the Psalms yesterday. You know, I've been chewing on this for the last two days. Psalm 149, uh, verse 4. And then I'll actually stop. Um, verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He takes pleasure in... I can't even drive three hours without getting angry at my kids, right, in the car. The Lord takes pleasure in me. I, can you believe that? Again, it's not because I'm great. It's because I'm in Christ. I'm not great. But the God of perfect power takes pleasure in me, His very imperfect Son. Man, come on. Right? Let, let that truth fill you with gospel gladness. God in Christ is glad with you and takes pleasure in you. And you did nothing to earn that or deserve that. Learn to rest in that and rejoice in Him always by thinking on Him always. Work on your thinking. Use the Word. Guys, you need the Word. Come and hear that Word preached. Um, and trust God that the feelings will follow. Thinking on Jesus leads to rejoicing in Jesus. Um, i got to stop. Grace Church, uh, God has been infinitely and eternally good to you in Christ. Uh, so I hope and pray that you would be happy in Him. Let me close you in this time. Let me close this time with, with a word of prayer. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious and good and kind to us. Uh, Father, you take pleasure in us, your people. Uh, Father, what a gift uh, that is. Father, forgive us for how apathetic and cold uh, we often are towards these wonderful truths. Father, you speak to us. You have given us your words. Forgive us for how we have failed to read them this week. Father, help us to delight in them. Help us to believe that we have your very words in front of us. And I pray that those words would be what shape and influence and inform our minds. Father, I pray that you would block out the world. Father, I pray that we would shut off all the media, social and TV and all the everything, and that we would listen to you, and that we would listen to your word, and that we would look and know what is, what is true. And you, are, Father, are, are what is true. And you are good, and you have told us what you are doing, and you are glorifying your name. And you are saving your people. And so we thank you so much for the privilege of being your people. We thank you for loving us. Uh, we thank you for being so patient and faithful and kind uh, to us. Father, I thank you for Grace Church. I thank you for 
um, planting them here and putting them in this place. Um, Father, putting them in an area like all areas that just desperately needs the gospel and that desperately needs your word faithfully proclaimed. We thank you for Pastor Jeff and, and 60 years of life. We thank you especially for new life in Christ and your grace to him and to Cindy and their family. And Father, I pray that you would give him many more years of, of service in this place. And I pray that he would always trust your word. And I pray that his vision for ministry would be your word. And I pray that he would preach it and that he would proclaim it and that you would build your church, Lord, and that you would work uh, through your word um, through this place. Um, Father, I thank you for the great privilege that it is to be here. Um, we ask now that you would work through your word in our hearts and our minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.